95 pound ch Chinese man with 160 million dollars behind his door. Let's get him out. We are live for another episode of Sports Night with Smith. Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Smith Brickner. And I welcome you yet again to episode, ooh, what is this, number seven? Really hard to believe that we're already on episode number seven here of Sports Night with Smith. It's been so fun. Uh, really getting to do this show on a consistent basis and to have so many family and friends telling me what I am doing well, what I can be doing a little better. It's it's all good feedback in my eyes. So thank you, everyone, for for hopping on. It's It's been so fun doing this. And if you're not already, I encourage you to follow OWWR Web Radio on all of its social media platforms. On Facebook, it's OWWR. On Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, O-W-W-R-N-Y. And be sure to visit our website at O-W-W-R-N-Y.org. You can see our schedule as well as some of the other content that has been posted up on the website. Well, it was a very busy week in sports. And we're going to go across the board here today, mostly in the NFL, NBA, and MLB. And I've got a special guest a second time special guest and we're going to be talking about the New York Mets and their top prospect list which was recently published up on baseballperspectus.com and I did a podcast with Jared Seidler just as I brought him on the show I believe he was actually my first guest or second guest on the show we did a podcast for the Baseball Prospectus Podcast Network and that episode went live last week. So wherever you get your podcasts, you can not only find my radio show, which has everything recorded for you, ready to go, Sports Tonight with Smith on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, but also the Baseball Perspectives Podcast Network. So if you're not sick and tired of hearing my voice, which God bless you if you're not, that's where you can find more of my content, including that Mets Top Prospect podcast. So definitely encourage you to take a look if that interests you. But like I said, we're going to be talking about quite a few things today. And I think one of the most pressing things is to talk about a player in the NFL that's going to be making an imminent return in a couple of weeks and a controversial one at that, that being one Deshaun Watson. And if you're not paying attention to the NFL, he is not a quarterback for the Houston Texans anymore. He is a quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. And he was traded during the offseason after he voices displeasure with the Texans. But what was interesting is that he was he was traded in the midst of a number of criminal investigations, civil lawsuits stemming from sexual assault allegations. And specifically, there were 25-plus women that came out 
all who were masseuses who claimed that Deshaun Watson did unspeakable acts on them. We'll leave it at that. And there's been a lot of outrage over what transpired after those allegations came out, both from a criminal prosecution standpoint as well as a disciplinary standpoint from the NFL. And I think it's important to talk about these things because I do think actions deserve consequences. That's pretty obvious, right? And though Deshaun Watson was not criminally charged, everything we've seen speaks to the fact that he's guilty of gross misconduct at the very least. He settled with pretty much every single woman that came out and accused him of doing these unspeakable acts. And what's really alarming is that the stories for these women are strikingly similar. And I'm not going to get into specifics. If you really want the specifics on that, a lot of journalists have covered this for NFL.com, ESPN.com. CBSSports.com. If you really want to look it up, you can. But he settled with every single one of them. And on top of that, he was suspended by the NFL. And the NFL acknowledged, on top of the public investigation, that what Deshaun Watson did was heinous and despicable and terrible. So you hear all that, and you're thinking to yourself, all right, well, he must be suspended for at least a year, right? No. <laughs> no. He gets suspended for 12 weeks. 12 weeks. And if my math serves me correct, if we're doing a breakdown of game suspended versus women who he paid off, he basically got suspended for, for two quarters of an NFL game for every woman that came out and accused him. That's the penalty for sexually assaulting women, I guess, for lack of better words. And you know what? Listen, I have Deshaun Watson in a fantasy league. I'm simply playing in a league where the league has already made the decision. I cannot increase the suspension on Deshaun Watson, but I find this whole situation to be a joke. Like, tell me that suspending someone for basically two quarters for every woman who comes out against you is the right process and is the right decision. The NFL had an opportunity to set a precedent with Deshaun Watson in a way that they had not done before, and they completely dropped the ball. Now, I understand that the NFL was pushing for more, but they ultimately went to an arbiter. The arbiter decided on, I believe it was even a lesser punishment. I think it was like six games at one point. And they got it up to 11 after negotiations with Deshaun Watson's camp. 
But this, this to me should not be a negotiation. Since when was it acceptable for the person who was accused of all these things and by suspending him, you're basically acknowledging that he did something wrong. Since when did they have the ability to negotiate the terms of a suspension? I understand there are plea agreements in criminal court which can lower the case or lower the sentence. But they're not, they don't have the ability to directly negotiate exactly how much time they have in prison. The only time that happens is if they're getting some sort of immunity deal. And Deshaun Watson is completely guilty of doing something that no one else was really accomplice in. So it's not as if he can rattle out, rat out someone else. So this whole situation is really sad on a number of different levels. And the reason I'm bringing that up now is that Deshaun Watson is back practicing. He was permitted to start practicing a couple of weeks before. He's supposed to make his debut against, by the way, the Houston Texans in week 13. That's when his suspension ends. It's just, it's a really sad situation. And the, and the part that really strikes me about all of this is in the suspension and in the contract that the Browns gave Deshaun Watson, which, by the way, was completely guaranteed, might I add, in that contract extension that they gave him so willingly, they stipulated that every masseuse that he has moving forward while a member of the Cleveland Browns has to be approved by the Cleveland Browns. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the situation, I don't know what does. But the NFL had an opportunity to set a precedent to make it very clear that this type of behavior was not going to be tolerated. And they completely dropped the ball. Now, it's a really unfortunate situation. It's a sucky situation. But we have to talk about the sporting aspect of this. We are a sports talk show. And I do think it's important to, to point out that Deshaun Watson's probably getting some sort of special treatment because of the kind of talent that he is. And when he's on the field, he has been a top five caliber quarterback in the NFL. Every single year that he's been the starter for the entire season, he has consistently been in the top five in every major statistical category that I care about. And if you're looking at the Browns as currently constructed without Watson, the team is quite loaded in every regard except quarterback. Their defense has been problematic, but that's been more of a byproduct of injuries. But their running game is strong with Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt. Their offensive line is stout. They're not allowing all that much pressure, which does make Jacoby Brissett, the backup quarterback, his job a little easier. Their wide receivers and tight ends are collectively above average. And you've got a stout defensive line. They've got a lot of talent on this team. The only thing they're really missing 
is a quarterback. And I wanted to look to see if Jacoby Brissett is maybe a little bit luckier than we could have expected or underperforming. And, and the truth is that he is underperforming. He is supposed to be a backup quarterback after all in the NFL. That's what he's been his entire career outside of one year in Indianapolis where he was the surprise starter after Andrew Luck retired. But out of 25 eligible quarterbacks with at least 400 snaps, Brissett ranks 17th in completion percentage. And furthermore, he ranks 21st in completion percentage in which he was pressured. So that means the defensive line's getting into the pocket and forcing him to, I don't want to say make panic throws, but force him to make quicker decisions. That's not his MO. And furthermore, that one stat that really is important to me as a quarterback, that EPA per play that I talked about a couple weeks back, right? How many points are you adding per play based on your performance? He's 16th. So he's a below average quarterback in pretty much every regard. He's adding negative points to what should be on a per play basis. And whether you like it or hate it, that Deshaun Watson's returning, you're now looking at a team that might be a powerhouse if Deshaun Watson's even close to what he was in Houston. Now, here's the caveat. He has not played in almost two years. That's a very long time to be away from the game of football. So is he going to return to that form of play? I don't know. That remains to be seen. But what I can say is the fact that we're even having to have this conversation, frankly, is a little incredible to me. It's sad. The NFL really blew this opportunity to make a statement. And now we're just going to pretend like it didn't happen because that's what the NFL does. When players do something incredibly heinous and they somehow find their way back on an NFL roster and, oh, by the way, get 200-plus million guaranteed, the first time that's ever happened, these things tend to slide on the rug a little bit, right? Really don't think about it when Deshaun Watson's throwing 80-yard bombs to Amari Cooper or getting Kareem Hunt on a wheel route or DP Donovan Peoples-Jones on a 60-yard go route, right? We don't care about it anymore. But we just have to remember that poor decision-making does not have consequences in the NFL, nine times out of ten. And it's astonishing. It's sad. I hate that I even have to bring it up. But that's where we are. So I started on a bit of a somber note today, as you can see. But I promise that the rest of the show is going to be very interesting. And I want to hear from you guys about some of the other segments I'm going to talk about. We're going to talk about Anthony Rizzo returning to the Yankees, right? A little bit more lighthearted news. But if you want to talk about this situation with Deshaun Watson, because I know it's a, it's a talking point for a lot of people in the sports media right now. If you want to talk about that or anything else we're going to talk about, give me a call, 516-876-4964. Again, that's 516-876-4964. We'll be right back. With more of Sports Tonight with Smith here on OWWR Web Radio. It's time for the moment you've been waiting for. 
That's right. It's time to listen to Cup of Joe here on OWWR, Old Westbury Web Radio. Join me, Joel DeRosier, every Saturday from 12 to 1 p.m. to get your dose of rock and roll grunge and alternative tunes. Cup of Joe is cooking up a blend of jams to get you going. Tune in here on OWWR, Old Westbury Web Radio. The Old Westbury men's basketball team is back on the court and ready to take on NYU. Show your Panther pride November 28th as the Panthers face off against the Violets. Tip-off is at 7 o'clock p.m. in New York City at the Hunter Sportsplex. A team success begins with the support of their fans, so come out and take over NYU on November 28th at 7 o'clock p.m. For more information, visit OldWestburyPanthers.com. That's OldWestburyPanthers.com. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Old Westbury Web Radio, where you can listen and be heard. Call us now at 516-876-4964. That's It's Foresight with Smith, 718 here on the East Coast. 43 degree weather, man. This weather's got to make up its mind at some point, right? I mean, we're talking about 75 degree weather on Saturday. Back to 40 degrees on Monday. Supposed to be 30 degrees yesterday. Thank God it wasn't. But, yeah, this, this weather is messing some people up with, you know, I feel like I've had the sniffles throughout this whole week as a result of all this temperature variation. And I know a lot of my friends have been sick over the past couple of days. So this weather's got to make up its mind at some point, right? We can't just keep going in this loop of hot, cold, hot, cold. It's like that really bad relationship you're in where it's just hot and cold. We don't want that here for our weather. Uh, I'm going to stop with that. <laughs> 719, and we've got some news about the Yankees. How about them Yankees actually making a signing? I didn't think we would see the day when the Yankees would spend money again because apparently they're a small market team if you talk to Hal Steinbrenner, but they certainly didn't show that way when they signed Anthony Rizzo to a multi-year deal and including a team option in the final year of his deal. So, you know, listen, I did not think the Yankees would re-sign Anthony Rizzo, and I didn't necessarily think it was because they were cheap, although I do think they're cheap given their revenue. They are very cheap. But I did not think this was the most immediate need for the team. If you recall, 
two or three weeks back, I mentioned that I thought the Yankees should go ahead and spend money on Aaron Judge, on pitching, specifically high-end pitching, and other outfield help. The reason being that you've got a collection of young players already up in the major league level that you've got to see what you have. And I have talked about the Yankees being a high-end player development machine, which they are. The one Achilles heel they've always had, though, is they've never given young players a legitimate chance to start. I can honestly tell you the last time I remember the Yankees giving any kind of starting role to a young player was Glaber Torres. We're We're talking about almost five years ago now at this point. Like, when's the last time the Yankees had a younger player that they gave a chance to? Right, It was Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez, Labor Torres, and that's about it. And they've had some talented players come through their system over the years. And listen, I don't think they're wrong for bringing in other players throughout the years to fill in at certain spots. But I thought the Aaron Hicks trade at the time when they traded John Ryan Murphy, remember that catcher, remember the name, John Ryan Murphy? They traded him for Aaron Hicks. That's a win. And bringing Anthony Rizzo is a win. And bringing DJ LeMayu is a win. A lot of wins, right? But at the same time, you have become reliant on these older players to keep it up. And you refuse to give players a chance. Now, listen, what I'm about to say does not imply that I think this player is good. But the Yankees did not give Esteban Floreal, Clint Frazier, or Miguel Andujar any chance to win. They were set up to lose, right? It took one injury to both those players. For them to lose their jobs. Do you remember back in 2018 when Frazier was entering his second year in the major leagues? Everyone was so excited, myself included, and was seeing what Miguel Andujar was doing, exhibiting the, the plus hit tool that had been projected throughout his minor league career. It was fun. It was exhilarating. The team was full of energy. And obviously, injuries played a, a, a key role in that, but they never really got their opportunity again. And it kind of feels like we're falling back into that dilemma by bringing Anthony Rizzo. Now, again, I love Anthony Rizzo, but was first base really the biggest need for the Yankees? No. Was this money perhaps better spent in other areas? Yes, especially if they don't spend money on Aaron Judge. Which, Yankees fans, you got to brace yourself. There is a real possibility that Aaron Judge is not wearing pinstripes on opening day next year. So I like the signing in a vacuum. 
the deal, I think, makes a lot of sense from just a, a pure talent standpoint. A deal worth up to $51 million for a guy who hit, I believe it was 32 home runs this year. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here there are some caveats with Rizzo, though. I know he doesn't strike out, and that's a big thing in this Yankees lineup. I know he's a left-handed bat in this lineup. I get that as well. But at the same time, everyone credits him for being such a great defensive first baseman. And you know what? There was a point in time when Anthony Rizzo was a very good defensive first baseman. That ship has sailed. And I think a lot of people have difficulty removing these preconceived notions about players defensively. They just assume that if you're good at one point in your career, you're probably good for the rest of your career. And that's just not the case. There were a, a number of plays throughout the year that Rizzo made that were incredible. And he's certainly better at first base than Isaiah Conner-Falefa is at shortstop. You will never convince me IKF is a good defensive shortstop, nor a starting caliber player on any team. Get out of here with that. But there is a public consensus that Rizzo is an above-average defensive first baseman. And listen, the numbers don't suggest that at this point. They say he's barely a league-average defensive first baseman at that. And on top of that, almost 90% of his home runs this year were pulled to right field. And listen, if I was a left-handed hitter in Yankee Stadium, I would be trying to pull every ball as well. But these are the kinds of profiles over time that do not age that gracefully. Once you get into your early to mid-30s, and Rizzo's now 33, this kind of power profile drops precipitously. So I want to exude caution with this signing. One, because I don't think the Yankees really needed it, and I think the money could have been spent elsewhere. But two, there are some warning signs in this profile that I don't think enough people are talking about. Now, back to my first point. There's another follow-up question here. Does this signing of Anthony Rizzo signified that maybe they'll trade Glaber Torres. Now that is an interesting question. And I'd love to hear Yankees fans, what you guys think about that. Give me a call 516-876-4964. But to my point about giving young players an opportunity, perhaps this is a way for the Yankees to build up a surplus where they can afford to trade Glaber Torres. If you remember, at the trade deadline, the Yankees had advanced talks with the Miami Marlins in a deal centering around Glaber Torres and starting pitcher for the Marlins, Pablo Lopez. Now, there were going to be some additional pieces on each side of the deal, probably a little bit more on the Yankees side because I would imagine that Lopez is probably the slightly more valuable player at this point than Glaber is. But there were conversations held, and I think it makes a lot of sense for both teams to revisit that deal. If you recall, when I laid out my plan for the Yankees this offseason, I said they should follow up with the Marlins and try to get Pablo Lopez. Pablo Lopez, for the first half of the 2022 season, was one of the best pitchers in baseball, was being thrown out there as a Cy Young candidate. 
And in the second half of the season, fell off, had some nagging injuries. I'm largely willing to write off the second half of the season for Pablo Lopez. We know what Glaber Torres is at this point. He used to have a weird but aesthetically pleasing swing to look at, but over time, he's become a guy that tries to lift the ball at a rate that I think hinders his overall offensive upside. And if the Marlins, who have shown no ability to develop hitting, want to bring in a, a more established bat like Torres and are willing to give up Pablo Lopez, I think you got to have that conversation if, the, if you're the Yankees because you got to see what you have in the young guys. Oswald Peraza is the best defensive shortstop on this team right now. And as currently constructed, I think the Yankees mistakenly would put IKF at shortstop. So I think it opens up an opportunity for Oswald Peraza to get into the lineup on a consistent basis. Now it also opens up the opportunity for DJ LeMayhew to get full-time opportunities. But then you have this question because even then you've still got a bit of a log jam because you've got Donaldson, IKF, Oswald Cabrera, Oswaldo Peraza, and Rizzo. So do you put LeMayhew or Cabrera in some type of utility role? I think LeMayhew's better than a utility guy. So even so, I think the Yankees are positioning themselves to trade Labor Torres. He is going to be making some money this offseason. So if you can trade him for a pitcher that is projected to make similar amounts of money to him, so you're not really adding any money, but you are adding pitching and you're trading from a position of strength, I think you have to do that. So I'm going to be very interested to see if the Yankees ultimately follow through on that. I think they should. I think it makes all the sense in the world. I don't understand why they wouldn't. But the Yankees have surprised me before, both good and bad. More to come here on Sports Tonight with Smith. We're going to talk a little bit about the Jets. We're going to talk a little Mets. We're going to talk some Giants. We've got everything you could think of, New York sports, and more to come here later on. Sports Tonight with Smith. We're on the other side of this commercial break. You're listening to OWWR Web Radio. Westbury women's basketball team is taking the court against the Knights of Mount St. Mary's College in Newburgh, New York on Saturday, November 19th. Tip-off is at 1 o'clock p.m. So come out and support your old Westbury Lady Panthers. That's Saturday, November 19th at 1 o'clock p.m. at Mount St. Mary's College. For more information, visit oldwestburypanthers.com. That's oldwestburypanthers.com. When might you be buzzed? When you suddenly love everything. You guys, I love this song. I love these nachos. I love our kickball league. Ugh! I love this guy. What's your name? You know what I love? A ride when it's time to head out. If you see a buzzed warning sign, call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. I love your car. Is this real leather? 
You've read it on the bathroom wall. You've heard your friends talking. They say for a good time, try St. James Infirmary with host me, Michael the Mola Maven. We bring you radio as it used to be, radio as it ought to be, with rock, folk, blues, country, rhythm and blues, and much, much more. That's St. James Infirmary every Friday afternoon from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, only on OWWR, Old Westbury Web Radio. You've heard us talk, but have you seen us dance? Not to brag or anything, but we're pretty good at it. Visit us on TikTok at O-W-W-R-N-Y and watch us get down. That's O-W-W-R-N-Y on TikTok. It is Sports Tonight with Smith. We're already 30 minutes plus into this program, and I swear every time that we do this show, it goes faster and faster. I'm going through the commercial breaks, and I'm like, wow, we're already through <laughs> We're already through the minute and a half of commercials. That's pretty wild. Well, thank you again, everyone, for listening in. Your support really does mean the world to me, and Always thankful to each of those of you who are listening on a consistent basis. It really does mean a lot. So I alluded to the fact that Aaron Judge may not be wearing a Yankees uniform on opening day. And it's it's frightening to think about as a Yankees fan. But on the other side of town, there's as many questions about one Jacob deGrom. And I thought it'd be interesting to do a friendly competition, right? So here's what I came up with. If you want to call in and tell me where a certain player is going to land in free agency, I'll give you a player and you have to tell me what team he's going to sign with. And if you get it right, you'll get a special prize. I can't promise or reveal what that prize is, but it's a surprise. You can't spell prize without surprise. Or the other way around. You can't spell surprise without prize. My mind is, oh boy, my mind is uh, in a mess right now. But you can't spell surprise without prize. So you're going to get a surprise if you get the players right. But you got to call in. I'm going to give you a name, and you got to tell me what team you think that player is going to land with. 516-876-4964. Again, that's 516-876-4964. So I thought that I would get this party started by giving you some of my predictions for the offseason. So I'll start with most of the local guys that are reaching free agency. I was going to do Anthony Rizzo, but obviously we don't have to do that anymore. I was not predicting the Yankees, so I would have been over one, but we're not counting that. So we will start with the other major Yankees free agent, of course, that's Aaron Judge. And despite what I just said about me not being all that confident in Aaron Judge being a part of this organization on opening day, I'm still going to go with the Yankees, and here's my thought process. 
I think if you're looking at any one individual team that has the single best chance to land Aaron Judge, I still think it's the Yankees. However, if you ask me, would I take the Yankees or would I take the field? And who would sign him? I would go with the field. Does that make sense? Right? So basically what I'm saying is I think the Yankees have, let's call it a 45% chance of landing judge, which is higher odds than any other team, but it's still not greater than 50%. Right? The rest of the field, about 55%. That's kind of, that's kind of what I'm thinking here. So I, I don't exude a lot of confidence in this because the Yankees are talking about financial responsibility they're pointing to the fact that, yeah, we can spend money, but we need to be smart about it. We need to be sustainable. The, the dreaded S word in front office vernacular. Sustainability, also another word for we're not spending any money. I mean, that's a, that's a real concern of mine, honestly. I know how this stuff goes. I've been around this. I've seen this. And it's usually not indicative of signing a big-time player. But, again, it's Aaron Judge. It's, it's almost to the level of Derek Jeter. Not quite because Judge has been a total zero in the playoffs throughout most of his career. But in terms of popularity, I think he's the closest thing to, that we've had to Derek Jeter since he retired. So I think Yankees brass understands that. And they're going to feel this obligation to try to re-sign him. I think that's, I think that's the way it's going to go down. They're going to be hesitant to spend money, but I think they're going to feel this urge to do so. Or they're going to have a revolt on their hands across Yankees universe, and rightfully so. Aaron Judge might be staying in New York, but the other big-time free agent on the other side of town I don't think will be staying in New York. And that's Jacob deGrom. I think he will be going to the Braves. I know how the Braves operate. I understand that they are willing to bring in the very best players if they have the opportunity to do so. Jacob deGrom has stated publicly and privately that he wants to be closer to home in Florida. Now, I don't think the Rays or the Marlins are going to make an aggressive push for Jacob deGrom for self-inflicted budgetary restraints. Right? They could. Any, any owner in baseball could sign Jacob deGrom if they got up one day and felt like spending a lot of money, which every single owner in baseball is capable of doing, might I add. So it's not that, but they're not going to. So the second closest thing would be Georgia. And the Braves are just conveniently a very good team that needs pitching. So I'm going to go with the Braves here. And I know that's not a very popular take or it, it's not a popular, but it's more of a boring take. But sometimes these things are straightforward enough where you just can't overthink it. I think that's one of those examples. So Jacob DeGrom that would really suck for Mets fans. I would enjoy it because I love seeing Mets fans suffer. And I think they deserve to suffer because they're as ungrateful as an, of a fan base as I think there is. 
even when the team had 100-plus wins this year, they barely filled up that stadium, barely. And there were games, high-leverage games in September, where the top bowl was barely filled. Right? They'll show shots of the left-field bleacher seats, and there might be one or two people in that section. And they complain, and they're insufferable sometimes. I'm sorry, Mets fans. Sometimes you're insufferable. Prove me wrong. But I like seeing Mets fans suffer. So what better way to make them suffer than for Jacob deGrom to go to the Braves? I said it. Brandon Nimmo, I also don't think will be returning to the Mets. Um, now, this one, I, I'm not trying to slight the Mets or anything when I say this, but I do think the Blue Jays are a prime suitor for Brandon Nimmo. The Blue Jays traded away one of their primary outfielders today, Teoscar Hernandez, for the Seattle Mariners' Eric Swanson, a former Yankees prospect, my ad, who they traded in the James Paxson deal, and Adam Macko, who was a prospect that had an up-and-down year in the Mariners' farm system, but based off a lot of scouts and team analysts I've talked to across the industry, not just one team, but multiple teams, about Adam Macko's I'm working on prospect lists, he's a guy that a lot of people are picking to click and really put it together next year. So it was a very good return for the Blue Jays, but point is they did trade away a primary outfielder in Teoscar Hernandez. They also have a conundrum with George Springer where he may not be completely healthy to start the year, and you're probably going to want to have another alternative in center field. And listen, even when George Springer returns in Toronto, you have to ask yourself, do you want a guy that's teetering into the mid-30s to be your center fielder? Probably not. Brandon Nimbo, for the longest time, was one of the worst defensive center fielders in baseball. He practiced and worked hard to improve his reads, and it showed this year. He was a comfortably above-average defensive center fielder. That's a really nice player when you factor in that he's a guy that gets on base. He has good gap-to-gap power. He can get you 20 home runs in a season. That's a really nice player. And I think the Blue Jays have positioned themselves with this trade of Teoscar Hernandez bringing up money to bring him in. Teoscar Hernandez was not a center fielder either. So they really did not have a sufficient backup plan in center field for George Springer. They have now created an opportunity to bring in Brandon Nemo. So I don't think the Mets will be bringing him back. So now the Mets have this weird dilemma. You don't have DeGrom. You don't have Kanya. So do you bring in Verlander? That's been rumored. We'll get to that. The next person that I want to bring up, though, is Chris Bassett, because I think he's the next biggest free agent in New York right now after Judge, DeGrom, and Nemo. I'm going to predict here that Bassett does stay in Queens with the Mets. Billy Epler and Steve Cohen love Chris Bassett. They prioritized him after getting or after negotiating with Max Scherzer. He was their number one trade target in the offseason, pretty comfortably so. 
And from what I've gathered from people, Chris Bassett really enjoyed being in New York. He really enjoyed the pressure of performing in the biggest market in the country. And if the Mets offer a three-year, $60 million deal, I think that gets it done. And frankly, the Mets need all the help they can get in the pitching staff, especially if they're not bringing back DeGrom, which, again, I don't think is going to happen. So I hinted at this, but I think Justin Verlander will be a Met. That's right. I think he will be a Met. The thought process being that Verlander is married to Kate Upton. And Kate Upton has basically alluded to the point that she'd like to be in either New York or Los Angeles. So that significantly limits the number of teams that Verlander could sign with. The Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Mets. This does not feel like a Yankee signing. I could see the Dodgers coming in second place here, but this just just kind of feels like a deal where if DeGrom signs first, if DeGrom signs ahead of Verlander, I think he will be a New York Met. If DeGrom signs after Verlander, I think Verlander will be a Dodger. Does that make sense? So what I'm telling you is I think DeGrom will sign ahead of Verlander and thus Verlander will be a Met. I believe all that's going to happen. Um, I know there are people that think that's absolutely insane that Justin Verlander is not going to come to the Mets, but weren't we saying the same thing about Max Scherzer last year? And didn't Max Scherzer in an athletic article hint at the point that he had virtually no interest in coming to the Mets after he heard about all the terrible things that happened in 2021 with this new ownership group? And look what happened. Look what happened. Time for a weather update here on Long Island in the tri-state area. You know, I mentioned before that we've dealt with some really cold weather to begin this week. That's the case again tonight. We're going to be anywhere from the low 40s to the mid-30s. It's going to get down to as cold as 32 degrees tomorrow morning, which is just, I, I can't deal with that. But we're going to be dealing with temperatures in the 40s at best, basically up until Thanksgiving. So get ready for cold weather. If you don't have your winter jackets ready to go, get them set up because every day from now until Thanksgiving is expected to be at best in the mid-40s. And at worst, we're looking at some temperatures that could be in the mid-20s. So again, get those winter coats ready. Pack up, warm up, get those scarves, get those gloves, whatever you got to do. Now, the one caveat is that it will be very, very nice the next few days because we've had a lot of rain coming to the Tri-State area. It's been pretty ugly, but that's going to change. So we have that to look forward to. So consensus, sunny, yay, cold, ah. So not looking forward to the cold weather, but at least we can deal with the sun, I suppose, right? Always sunny in New York. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. 748 here on the East Coast. We'll come back 
after these breaks. You are listening to Sports Tonight with Smith. Give us a call, 516-876-4964. You want to talk some Yankees, some Jets, Giants, Nets, Knicks, even Rangers, Islanders, you name it. Give us a call, but all that and more to come here on Sports Night with Smith on OWWR Web Radio. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager learning the lingo. Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying, that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying, totally just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit adoptuskids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. The Old Westbury men's basketball team is back on the court for their final game of the regular season against the College of Mount St. Vincent. Show your Panther pride on Saturday, February 18th in Riverdale, New York, as the Panthers face off against those dastardly Dolphins. Opening tip-off is at 2 o'clock p.m. A team's success begins with the support of their fans, so come cheer on your Panthers. Once again, that is Saturday, February 18th at 2 o'clock p.m. at the College of Mount St. Vincent. For more information, visit OldWestBearPanthers.com. That's OldWestBearPanthers.com. You're listening to OWWR, Old Westbury Web Radio. Just getting started here on Sports Tonight with Smith on OWWR Web Radio. We've got another hour to go here at least. An hour and ten minutes more specifically here. And we've got a lot of football to talk about. We have a lot of Jets, a lot of Giants. We're going to have a fantasy football segment at one point. And we've got Jared Seidler of Baseball Prospectus, the website I write for, coming on in just a few moments. We're going to talk a little bit about the Mets farm system again we did a whole podcast on this on the baseball prospectus podcast network so if you haven't taken a listen to that and you're also interested in looking at what other teams have going on their farm system absolutely take a look at the baseball prospectus podcast network but as it pertains to owwr be sure to follow us on facebook at owwr on twitter snapchat and instagram at owwrny and be sure to visit our website at owwrny.com so before we hit the top of the hour, I did want to touch on those New York football giants. And what better way to illustrate the giant success than to just state the record, 7-2. and two. I mean, could you have ever imagined a scenario where the Yankees are 7-2 and two, and I don't want to say not looking elite, but doing so in unconvincing fashion, I think is the best way to put it. 
look, I think any Giants fan out there would take seven and two, regardless of how it looks. It could be the ugliest, most boring, unwatchable games ever. But if the Giants are seven and two, you're going to be happy with that, right? And that was largely the case last Sunday when they beat the Texans at MetLife. The Texans are probably the worst team in baseball. I just said baseball. They are the worst team in football, and they probably would be the worst team in baseball too. But they are the worst team in football right now. They really have no version of a quarterback that's even league average or even below average. Davis Mills has been a complete disaster this year for the Texans after putting up what was a pretty promising rookie campaign. He's been terrible this year. He's bottom of the barrel among starters in virtually every statistic that's important, right? You remember that segment a couple of weeks ago? I mentioned this earlier on this show. Expected points added per play. Yeah, Davis Mills is towards the bottom. He's also towards the bottom in completion percentage when not pressured, as well as when he's pressured. So even when he's got a clean pocket, he's not finding those guys. Not hitting them in the chest. He's not hitting them in stride. He's throwing interceptable passes. He's been intercepted a decent chunk. He tries to force things, and you just saw all of those things rear their ugly heads against the Giants. So, listen, a win is a win in the NFL. They're rare and important, and every win counts. A win against the Eagles is as valuable as a win against the Texans. Well, maybe not. Maybe if you have a tiebreaker against the Eagles in the division and you won that game, it means more than beating the Texans. But you get my point. You get my point, right? But the thing that always stands out to me about these wins for the Giants is just the complete 180 that Daniel Jones has had in protecting the football. It's, I have not seen this sort of transformation in a player stopping the fumbling and interceptable passes in a way that Daniel Jones has. And it has not been talked enough about on sports radio, in articles, on podcasts. It's barely being brought up because the Giants are not asking Daniel Jones to move heaven and earth. I get that. But we have seen other teams that do not rely on their quarterback. But in the few times they do, they always seem to fumble it or always seem to throw a pass that should have been intercepted. Daniel Jones is not doing that. And it's giving this team the opportunity to win football games. Brian Dable is a master at putting his players in positions to succeed, right? I don't care what formation or what philosophy you have on the offensive side of the ball. I could care less what your defensive philosophy is. What I do care about is putting in schemes offensively and defensively that best match up with your players' best strengths. Coaches often fall into a trap where if something worked for them in a previous role with another team, they are going to try their best to implement that same exact process with 
their new team. Case in point, the Denver Broncos. Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson are very different quarterbacks. They're both very talented, or correction, were talented. But they did it in very different ways. Aaron Rodgers was a master at exposing defenses in the middle of the field. Either he would scramble and get 15, 20 yards, or he would find Devontae Adams or Robert Tunyon or Aaron Jones up the middle in the soft spot of the defense. Russell Wilson had one of the best deep balls in the NFL. And where do we like to throw deep balls? On the edges, on the perimeter. That's why Tyler Lockett, that's why DK Metcalf had some of the deepest air yards in football. And my point in bringing up those players is that those players were put in a position to succeed by their coaches. Now, it's the complete opposite. So it really does go to show you that coaches who find ways to maximize the strengths of the players that they have, even if they're flawed, nine times out of ten are going to be better coaches than those who are stuck in their ways. Right? We talk about Nathaniel Hackett on this program, the Denver Broncos head coach. I call him Hackett the hack because he's a hack. He's a bad NFL coach, and he should be fired. Brian Dable, on the other hand, is looking like a coach of the year candidate as a first-time NFL head coach. And listen, you could sit here and complain about the Giants really not beating anyone of significance. And that's partially true. But listen, you have to beat the bad teams. You can't just not beat the bad teams because what, you're just supposed to lose games because you're going up against bad teams? Like, that's ridiculous. So, yeah. People complaining about the Giants not succeeding against good teams and performing against bad teams, it's it's whatever, honestly. I don't have the headspace for it. They're 7-2 and two for crying out loud. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back on the other side of the hour. Jared Seidler from Baseball Respectus will be calling in. All that and more on Sportsnet with Smith on OWWR Web Radio. But I feel like this isn't working out when you're driving. I know you may think that it's possible to focus both on me and the road, but I just don't feel the same way. I think we should spend time away from each other when you're driving. It's for the best. Visit stoptextstoprex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, it's your host, Carlos Cruz. Join me on Through the Ages for a weekly mix of music from the 90s, 2000s, and today's best hits to really get your vibe going. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. to get pumped up. That's every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Only on OWWR Old Westbury Web Radio. See you there. Psst. We have a secret just for you. There's a way to know what OWWR Old Westbury Web Radio is doing all day, all the time. 
Just visit OWWRNY.org and get real-time updates on our social media activity, upcoming events, and interviews. That's OWWRNY.org. It is 8 o'clock here on the East Coast, and I alluded to this, that we'd be bringing on my colleague at Baseball Perspectives, Jared Seidler, and we're following through on that. Jared is on the line. Jared, it's good to have you on. You know, you are my first repeat special guest, so it is the accomplishment on your end, I would say. Um Tell us how you're feeling. Do you feel honored right now? Do you feel like this is a waste of your time? We're somewhere in the middle. Where are you on that? No, I think this is this is fun. Yeah, first time I did it, I closed it about a month, a month and a half ago. I made some terrible uh, predictions about the playoffs. But... Who didn't? Who didn't? I mean, we we, sh- we should have been safe. We should have gone with the safe money. Just said that the Astros are gonna find a way to do this as they do every year, it seems, and finally break through. So. Everyone was at fault. Not just you, not just me, everyone. Yeah, yeah. It was a real fun playoffs, though. I mean, for all the uh, convincing early on that there were, like, too many underdogs winning, you know, the Astros were pretty clearly the second-best second team in baseball during the regular season. They were pretty clearly the best team in the American League over the entire course of the season. There were periods where the Yankees were better. So, you know, they deserved to win, and obviously – with them winning, that brings in a whole host of weird stuff, like, you know, the um, trash can banging team and the general manager functionally getting fired a week later. But, yeah. Incredible. More, if, if not the best team, then pretty darn close. So I, I, I would agree. And I, I think every fan, even of the Yankees, had to acknowledge just the way that they got beat, that, yeah, the Astros are the best team, and, you know, you're never going to convince me that the Phillies were a top five team in baseball. Get out of here. They had a really good three-week stretch. Congratulations. That's what you can do when you have Aaron Nolan, Zach Wheeler. But that's not why you're here, Jared. You are here to talk about the New York Mets. And, again, for those that missed it, Jared and I did a podcast on the Baseball Perspectives Podcast Network where we talked about the New York Mets' top prospects in detail. And uh, you'll hear some other conversations about one, oh, I don't know, Shohei Otani getting traded maybe to the Mets. But that's neither here nor there. So I thought it'd be good for Jared just to give a quick summary of some of the top-tier prospects that the Mets have uh, and, and answer some of the other questions that I might have. But, Jared, let's get into it. So Francisco Alvarez, for those who are too lazy to read uh, our top prospect list, which please go read it. But for those who are, Francisco Alvarez, to no one's surprise, is the number one prospect in the system. We talked about him as a guy that's got insane pop uh, from the catching position, which you just do not see every day. There are concerns about whether or not he'll actually be able to stay behind the plate defensively as a catcher. But the complete package would suggest that he is a top five prospect in baseball. So just curious if you have any other thoughts that you think would be important to get out there for people to know about Francisco Alvarez? Yeah, I mean, we did um, kind of our personal prospect list to start preparing. We're going to release our 
I mean, pretty much everybody on staff had him as one of the top five prospects. Um, we ranked him number two at midseason. His second half wasn't super great. He struggled a little bit at AAA. He had an ankle injury and then kind of lingered on, and he actually had surgery on in the offseason, which you really don't want to see, like an ankle injury on your 20-year-old catching prospect. That yeah. something that uh, can linger and turn him into not a catching prospect later on. But he's, he's really good. He's going to hit a lot of home runs, and it looks like he's going to stay behind the plate. And the, you know, the, the nature of the catching position is you can be an above-average offensive player and an average defender and play 110 games, you're like one of the top five or six catchers in the league pretty much because there's really only five or six good catchers at any given time. You know, you think about it right now, there's Real Muto, Will Smith, um, Adley Rutschman certainly up there. And then you start, you know, there's like Sean Murphy. <laughs> William Contreras, who's not even a full-time catcher? Yeah, his, his brother Wilson. Um, that's also real good. But, you know, that's, you know, basically why I described is Wilson Contreras. Wilson Contreras is about the fifth or sixth best catcher in the league. He's about to get paid a lot of money by somebody in free agency. And that's like a realistic role outcome for Alvarez. And he has the chance to be better than that if he can sort out the hit tool issues or improves a little further behind the plate. The history, he, he did make the majors this year. It was only for the last week of the season. But there's very few catchers, like, in recent history who have made the majors at 20 years old, it just doesn't happen. Catchers mm-hmm. aren't ready that quickly, right. both defensively and their offense tends to kind of lag a little bit because they're really learning the catching position and also, you know, taking a beating, frankly, behind the plays. So he's come really far for a young catcher, and this guy seems to be a really special player. Yeah. You know, I did listen to a podcast I think it was yesterday I listened to it where John Heyman and Joel Sherman of the New York Post asked Max Scherzer about Francisco Alvarez. And you know, he's, they're asking him, do you think he's ready to be a, a full-time catcher? And, you know, he basically said that he needs to prove himself a little bit. So I don't know if he's going to be a I, – I don't think he's going to be a full-time catcher. And I, I alluded to this on the podcast, but I think it might be one of those things where – he catches for seven innings. If they're in a close game and they're leading, they might put in Tom- Tomas Nito to be the closer, if you will, at the catching spot, plus defensive catcher there. But you know, at the very least, you're getting a guy that can be a rare offensive player at a position, and you can very easily just put in another guy defensively for the final two or three innings of the game. I mean, that's a thing you can do. So Yeah, but the Cubs and the Braves have both done that with the Contreras brothers, where yep. they've kind of spotted them at other positions or a designated hitter or defensively replaced them when caught. So it's a role that you can do. And Tomas Nero is actually really well suited for that because yeah. he's not a very good hitter, but he's a spectacular defender. Yep, absolutely. So number two on the list for the Mets was Brett Beatty, another guy who made a major league cameo, first at bat, pulls a ball into Truist Park, into the chop house, and hits a – it was a aesthetically pleasing home run. And you're just like, wow, we want more of that. And the reason we say we want more of that is because this guy hits far too many ground balls for a guy with this kind of raw power. So, Jared, I mean, if he's lifting the ball a little bit more, 
do you think there would have been a case for him to be closer to the top 10 prospects in baseball and thus a closer conversation for number one on this list? He's been pretty close to that level for a while. I mean, he's been on the teams, I think, for pretty much every list we've done since midseason 2021. Mm -hmm. So he's not real far off of that. It's just like a little slated lifting the ball and kind of trying to pull it and drive it to full power. His approach is a little more suited to take what the pitchers are going to give you and sometimes it's a ground ball through a shortstop hole or whatnot, which has worked for him in terms of production up to this point. But we know based on what we kind of know about modern baseball that that's not really going to optimize given his, you know, he hits the ball incredibly hard. It's supposed to be really nice exit velocities. He, you know, if you watch him take batting practice, it's a real nice batting practice. If you just look at his swing, it's a swing that should be geared for significant pull side power. So it's kind of like an approach issue. He's shown mm -hmm. signs of getting there. He's shown signs of getting there at various points this season. He gave that back a little bit when he got called up to the majors. That's not that surprising. Uh, it was his first exposure to the majors, and it kind of funny. That sort of thing kind of happened. But yeah, if he, you know, it's like a weird counterfactual because, you know, he put up like a 300, 400, 500 line in the minors this year already. Um, so yeah, if he. If we didn't have that ground ball and approach concern with him, he'd be one of the very best prospects in baseball. It wouldn't be. He'd, in some ways, be like a better Jordan Walker, who is, you know, up there with Alvarez. And that includes the concern that neither one of them is going to be long term third base. Mm -hmm. Maybe Jordan right. Walker. Walker's already kind of converting towards the outfield. And Beatty did not look as good this year at third base as he did last year, which is a concern. He's a big kid. So what you're telling me against what Mets Twitter might lead you to believe is that Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos are not the same player. <laughs> no, Mark Vientos uh, swings and misses an awful lot in the strike zone, which is a uh, very negative trait. Um, that's something that, um, as kind of bad ball data has developed, and, um, play discipline data has developed in the so-called backcast era, you know, really started to focus in on that mm -hmm. players with really poor in-zone contact rates just tend to get eaten alive by major league pitchers in ways that double-A or triple-A pitchers really can eat them alive. So he's kind of a player that's going to need to improve that segment to really have a consistent major league career as anything more than like a platoon first base DH type, um, which again, he's legitimate top-ten prospect in the system. He's still a good prospect. I just think um, you're not going to find a lot of players who strike out as often and hit the ground, hit the ball on the ground as often as Mark Vientos did in AAA, who then became 
particularly productive neighborhood hitter. He's not unprecedented, but he's got some shots from the He does. Um, and, you know, we now that we've talked a lot about the prospects that are most likely to make an impact at the major league level this upcoming season, I do think it's worthwhile for the last few minutes I have you, Jared, to talk about some of the prospects that are a little bit further away. There are three prospects that come to mind specifically that I think Mets fans are rightfully excited about, and those being Kevin Verrata, Jet Williams, and Alex Ramirez. Now, we've obviously done our own ranking. We have it Parada, Williams, Ramirez. But we have a lot of excitement for each of these players for very different reasons. Um, Parada, more of a sum of the parts catcher who can do everything reasonably well. Jet Williams is a guy that we heard that if he was just two or three inches taller, probably would be in consideration for the number one overall pick in last year's draft that he falls to the teens where the Mets get him, and a lot of smart teams really liked him. And then Alex Ramirez is this uber-athletic guy who's in the outfield. He's got great bat speed, but he swings and misses and is aggressive. So, Jared, let me ask you, like, I know that we have it ranked as Parada, Williams, and, and Ramirez in that order, but is that your prep list? Is that how you would list them out? Or is it more of just the consensus that you got from scouts that led you to that ranking? I think it's pretty much a consensus that Parada is the best of those three guys. Um, he was generally considered one of the five or six best players in his draft class. There was not – you couldn't, like, really find a scout that didn't like him or an analyst that didn't like him other than he's a catcher and everything's, like, good but not great. There wasn't, like, a knock on him. Um, the same way, you know, there was another catcher that was taken a little bit later, Daniel Cusack, who had, like, there were people that didn't think he could hit. That wasn't an issue with Parada. Like, a nice, well-rounded two-way catcher prospect. Now, as I kind of hinted at when we were talking about Alvarez, sometimes catcher prospects just fail. This is a phenomenon that John Sickles coined. Young catcher offensive stagnation syndrome about 20 years ago that no matter how good a catching prospect is, sometimes that, like, this weird stuff happens because they're a catcher, and catchers are weird. Mm -hmm. But I think it was pretty consensus that Parada was his number one. I don't think it was as much consensus on Williams and Ramirez. I would not be – I would expect many, if not most, other outlets to have Ramirez ahead of Williams, which is fine. People disagree. Um, There are people, like, you know, I – I don't know this for sure, and obviously there's different people within the Mets organization, but my sense is that the Mets might actually think Ramirez is a better prospect than Williams, but we're not trying to say what they think about their prospect. We're trying to make an independent evaluation of the prospect. And we just, we, we, you know, we talked to a lot of draft analysts, amateur scouts that really love Jack Williams. He was like the one player in the draft outside of the top couple players. You know, Jackson Holiday and Drew Jones. There was consensus agreement that those guys were all like great from everybody. But Jet Williams was the only player like outside the top five, six prospects that I was talking about that included Parada, where there was strong consensus between R and D analysts and scouts that this this guy has this guy's a real good base of tools. Now he's a 
he's a press hitter. So he's a long way away from the majors. He's like three or four years away. Um, at best, he's on the short side, as you said. Um, doesn't have a lot of arm strength, so it's probably like a center field, second base type projection. He's nominally a shortstop. He's not really a shortstop, um, which, again, is extraordinarily common. Most, you know, a lot of people play shortstop in these two majors. Miguel Cabrera played shortstop as a right. he got to double A. Like, right. you know, like, Gary Sheffield's made the majors as a shortstop. Wild. Mike Moore's, my, my favorite one is that Mike Moore's the real big first Yeah, the six foot five first baseman. Yeah. Yeah, who, who ended up not being a particularly good defender at first base, came up as a shortstop and played the major league game as a shortstop. So, you know. He's, he's got like he's got really nice contact numbers. He's got really nice batted ball numbers, which is all stuff that like we have data now on for prep players, which is wild. Because when I started doing this in 2016, that like just wasn't a thing. But now you have all these you have the, all these TrackMan units and Hawkeye units that are like turned on for like a significant part of the prep showcase team. So like. Jet Williams has played like dozens and dozens of games that we have TrackMan or TrackCast data on, which is just wild. A lot of it's not published. But we know he had him and Zach and Holiday had the best contact numbers amongst the high school class last year. And we know he had some of the better exit velocity numbers. Nobody can match up to Elijah Green and exit velocity numbers, but Elijah Green's contact rates are terrible. Right, right, Um, right. That's a. I try kind of in my own personal prospect analysis to focus on guys that make contact, hit the ball really hard, and know what pitches to swing at, which, like, sounds, like, really simple and reductive, but it's actually, that's actually, like, a controversial statement within the prospect I, It doesn't make sense to me, because when you explain it, I mean, it makes all the sense of the world. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of stats go into, a lot of numbers and analytics go into Kenny hit and all those other qualities that you brought up. So, I mean, it's simple, but the way that you get there sometimes is not so cut and dry, um, as you mentioned, yeah. but you know, and we Ramirez kind of has some more pitchful questions. Right. Shapes is a little more, makes a little less contact. President doesn't hit the ball quite as hard. Um, he's a lot more, Classically, physically projectable. You know, if you were picking, um, if you were picking the guy that you wanted to play college football in the SAC, you would pick Alex Ramirez, right? Yes. Because uh, he's a he's a tall, he's he's projectable kid. You expect him to add good weight, whereas Williams is just kind of like a short, you know, I, not Husky. Husky is the right word. He's like a short guy, but he has like the powerful build of the bigger. Yeah, guy. he's got he's he's a BMI guy. Yeah, right. So he's maxed out. You're right. Not going to get any further physical projectability from him. Um, we've also kind of learned in modern times that when we say that, we often end up being wrong because yeah, he might not like gain any like upper body mass, but he still might gain functional game power. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially as pitchers, because much easier measure is pitchers. Sometimes pitchers are viewed as completely unprojectable and now adding, like, five, seven, eight miles an hour to fastball velocity. Nestor Cortez is a perfect example of that. Um, 
Shane Beaver. So right. I just I really expect a lot more boxes with me and my personal prospect analysis. And I think baseball prospectus as a whole has started to look for over the last couple of years. So we kind of pushed him ahead of Ramirez, which I think is going to be out of line with consensus. Will neither be the first nor the last time that we're out of line with consensus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, you, you got that right. Uh, I'm going to finish off with you uh, with one final question. Personal cheese ball, a guy who may not be so well-known across uh, Mets fans' Twitter or Mets' Twitter just in general, but who is that one guy that stands out that may not be so well-known at the moment? This is an easy one because I'm the only reason he made the list. Bryce Montez Bayolka, who came up as a reliever, um, in the second half last season. If you run a stuff metric on Bryce Montez Bielka, he has like one of the best fastball slider combinations in like all of affiliated baseball. It's just like incredible stuff. He goes 102 miles an hour with like the greatest tack angle. Really impossible to hit. He throws like just this crazy, you know cutter slider kind of deal that's just got like exceptional um, exceptional break and is also thrown pretty hard. Uh, the downsides with him, we're going to do like the Billy Bean uh, money ball meme. Um, he's really <laughs> never thrown consistent strikes for any period of time. He's also got like a terrible health track record going back to college. But he's a guy that if he is even below average on command, he could be a closer. Like, that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with. And, you know, I've kind of – the Mets are getting better at working this stuff out. They were behind for a long time in pitch design, in load management and health. But they're starting to get there. And Montez Bielka is the type of player that if he just gets – like, if, if it just clicks a little bit, he's going to be like the setup guy for Edward Diaz for like the next couple of years. Oh, so man. He's, a, he's a guy that I think um, when he came up, it maybe just looked like this is like another in the long line of pitchers that, you know, the Mets are just kind of trying out because they need somebody. But he actually has like really special stuff. And we've been playing him for I mean, anytime you're throwing in the triple digits consistently, uh, yeah, you're going to catch our attention at Baseball Prospectus. And obviously – Velocity is not the end-all, be-all in, in grading out a fastball, but it's certainly a large component of it. So, right, but it's also like he, he's got like this, like GAA and IDP stuff, like all the modern stuff. Like yeah, yeah, that rise on the fastball. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Jared, listen, um, really appreciate you coming on to the program. As if you weren't already sick and tired of talking to me about Mets prospects, you did it again for another 20 minutes, so I thank you for that. Um, it's been a pleasure, and I'm sure that we'll have you on at some point again where I can bother you some more. Anytime, my friend. <laughs> I appreciate it, Jared. All right, everyone, that's Jared Seidler. Jared is, uh, I mean, honestly, Jared's one of my favorite people to talk baseball with. Um, he's such a smart guy. I've learned a lot from him over the years, too, about just the way we think about players and you know, what are some of the cues to pick up on when scouting a player. Jeez, I, there was a point in time where I was brand new into that world, and Jarrett was one of the very first people to bring me in and to show me the ropes, and I'm, I'm always going to be grateful to Jarrett for that, and he's always a, 
a great guy to talk about Mets prospects with. Well, listen, we're overdue for a commercial break, but I didn't. I thought it was worthwhile, so we'll take a commercial break now. We'll do an abbreviated fantasy football segment after that. We've got a little bit of uh, basketball talk after that, a little bit of Jets talk after that. All that and more here on Sports Night with Smith here on OWWR Web Radio. Do you want to learn the inner workings of live radio? Join the programming department. We coordinate and motivate on-air talent to produce the best product to play on the air. The OWWR program department focuses on collaborating with old Westbury students, alumni, as well as non-for-profit organizations. To get involved or for more information, call us at 516-628-5059. That's 516-628-5059. The Old Westbury women's basketball team is back on the court and ready to rumble with Purchase College. Show your Panther pride on Saturday, January 21st, as the Old Westbury Panthers face off against Purchase's Panthers. Tip-off is at 2 o'clock p.m. in Purchase. Come out and support Old Westbury at the Battle of the Panthers on Saturday, January 21st at 2 o'clock p.m. in Purchase. For more information, visit OldWestburyPanthers.com. That's OldWestburyPanthers.com. Morning, Mama. How you feeling? Great, and I'm ready for you today. I'm checking in on you. Morning meditation? Check. Dressed and ready to work out? Check. Check your blood pressure yet? And check. Boom. Great job, Mom. And about those gold earrings. No, ma'am. Now more than ever, it's important that we protect our hearts and the hearts of those we love. Monitor your blood pressure daily and help each other stay motivated. Rally your squad to take the online pledge at releasethepressure.org. Brought to you by the Release the Pressure Coalition and the Ad Council. Sports. Music. Talk. So it's just funny how those things kind of linger until you find a place for it. Community. This is your station, OWWR, Old Westbury Web Radio. Listen and be heard. We are living it up here on Sports Tonight with Smith, 826. Here in the old Westbury Web Radio Station. Well, we just had Jared Seiler on from Baseball Respectus. He did an amazing job really breaking down the Mets farm system, as he always does. It's always a pleasure to talk prospects with Jared, as I'm doing 30 podcasts on prospect lists for all 30 teams in Major League Baseball. So we've got a quick abbreviated segment here because we went over with Jarrett, and that's totally okay in my book. But I did want to go over some fantasy football plays for you guys. And I want to do a quick review of the three guys I brought up last week and some new guys for you this week. So last week, I recommended that you guys go after three players, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Terrace Marshall, Isaiah Spiller. Although Isaiah Spiller was not a play for last week. To me, he's more of a stash. He is the handcuff to Austin Eckler, the Los Angeles Chargers running back who has been injury prone in the past. And you can get Isaiah Spiller off of waivers for basically nothing. So he really didn't play. So I'm not really counting that as a loss. But again, I was never really counting him as a guy to start, more so a guy to stash. 
The other two guys, though, Donovan Peoples-Jones. I said starting with confidence, going up against a very exploitable Miami secondary. He rewarded us with 15 fantasy points in PPR leagues, 99 yards, looking very good and explosive while doing so. Terrace Marshall, he gave you that one really big play with a bunch of yards after the catch, looking all explosive and then does nothing after that. So, we're going to count DPJ's a win, though. Donald Peoples-Jones, definitely a big win. Isaiah Spiller, I'm marking down as an N.A. And I'm going to put Terrace Marshall down as a bust. So of the six players that I've recommended so far, we are three of six. Well, really three of five since Spiller's an N.A. So we're doing greater than 50%. So I'm pretty happy with that. I do have three other guys that I do want to present to you guys. And I think you can start each of these three guys with some relative confidence moving forward. Wandale Robinson. I've talked about him whenever we've talked about the Giants. But listen, Darius Slayton is a fine receiver. He's a clasher on the outside like Kenny Galladay, except he's not washed up like Kenny Galladay. And thus, he's going to get some of those big boon plays like he got against the Texans, where he makes a couple of big catches, a couple over the shoulder, jumping over guys, and running in for touchdowns. That's what Darius Slayton can do. But in fantasy football, we do not chase touchdowns. That's exactly why I've faded James Conner in years past. Leo, if you're listening, call in. But getting back to Wandale Robinson for a second, this is a guy that's going to command targets. It's going to come. He's a talented player. He's incredibly athletic. He's a guy that's going to win 99% of the time against the cornerback in the slot. And Daniel Jones does not push the ball down the field. Wandale Robinson is perfect for Daniel Jones' skill set. So I'm all in a Wandale Robinson. Kyron Williams, running back of the Los Angeles Rams. This Rams team is gross. I am going to say that up front. They are a gross team. This team is not good. They have severely underperformed. A lot of it a byproduct of a really bad offensive line. But here's the reason I'm going Kyron Williams. The fact that Cooper Cup is going to be out for an extended period of time. I believe he was placed on IR today. Opens up target opportunities in this offense. Kyron Williams is the lone real good pass catching running back in the Rams backfield. And as Cooper Cup was not a guy that committed targets deep down the field, more so in the short and the intermediate ranges, you could reasonably see Kyron Williams get a decent chunk of those targets, and you're not going to have to pay the price for Van Jefferson, who's on waivers. People will go way more aggressively after Van Jefferson than they will Kyron Williams. And I think you can start Kyron Williams this week. Paris Campbell, wide receiver for the Indianapolis Colts, is my third pick. This guy, when targeted, does a lot of really good stuff with the football. He's super explosive. He had a 99th percentile 40-yard time in the NFL Combine. His size-adjusted speed is tremendous, and he also has the ability to jump over people like it's nobody's business. And, oh, by the way, he's commanding targets at a very high clip whenever Matt Ryan's the quarterback in Indianapolis. So I think you can start him, and I think you can start Michael Pittman. So you've got three Colts that you could start in any given week now. I really do believe that. Michael Pittman, Paris Campbell, and Jonathan Taylor. Those three guys, and that's it. But you know what? That's a consolidated target tree. For Matt Ryan, and that's what we like. We like consolidated targets in offenses, and those three players are getting majority of the touches. 
So I, I really like each of those three players. If you're in a crunch and you have a lot of team players on by this week, which is a thing, those are the guys that I'm going after. So curious what everyone is going to do with their fancy teams. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but I'm curious. I want to hear what you guys have to say. Do you guys have any fantasy players that you want to ask me? Do you have any start sick questions? Give me a call. 516-876-4964. Again, that's 516-876-4964. We'll come back. And on the other side, we'll talk about the New York Jets who are coming off a bye week. They're going to be playing the Patriots for the second time in, I believe, three weeks. So a very interesting discussion coming up on the Jets. Plus more on Sports Tonight with Smith on OWWR Web Radio. Remember the last time your family visited the forest? It's a place of wonder and imagination for the whole family, where stories come to life. And it's closer than you think. Ready to plan your next visit? Make the forest part of your story today at a local park near you. Or find one at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. This person keeps texting me random letters. Like what? OMG. Oh, that's oh my gosh. What about TTYL? That's talk to you later. What does OWWR stand for? Old Westbury Web Radio, the best internet college radio station around. Do they have a website? Duh, it's OWWRNY.org. Or you can follow them on social media at OWWRNY. Did you know you're just one photo away from being more connected with the greatest college station in the nation? That's right, OWWR has a Snapchat. Just add us at OWWRNY on Snapchat and get to know our hosts in the studio as they give you news, talk, entertainment, and sports. That's OWWRNY on Snapchat. Okay, I'm feeling the staying alive. This is one of my favorite songs from the olden days, I guess you could say. I, I BGs are goaded, and uh, I think one of the more underrated goaded uh, groups out there. So, obviously, a classic song. And speaking of classics. The Jets beating the Bills a couple of weeks ago, I think, would go down as a classic for the Jets, not if you're a Bills fan. And, boy, the Bills have just had an excruciatingly bad luck the past couple of weeks against the Jets and against the Vikings. But I did want to talk a little bit about the Jets because they're coming up a bye week after beating the Bills. They're on cloud nine. They're six and three right now. Nobody saw that coming, similar to nobody saw the Giants going 7-2 and two in their first nine games, but we are here. And, you know, it's interesting. They somehow found a way to beat the Bills, who I think are a much better team than the Patriots are. But it just goes to show you that the NFL, anything can happen. Anything can happen in any given week in the NFL. 
And I think a lot of it can, can be attributed to Zach Wilson, either being a guy that is trying to force the issue and isn't good or is not afraid to scramble, get a few yards, slide, go out of bounds, right? He didn't force the issue against the Bills. He took what the defense gave him, and that's what the great quarterbacks do. They don't try to force the ball unless it's the fourth quarter and you have to get the ball down the field and the defense knows it. That's the only time you really have to do that. Or if you're trying to score points before halftime, you're trying to get the ball down the field so you can get into the field goal range, right? Those are, those are reasonable scenarios where, yes, you might need to force the ball down the field. Zach Wilson forces the ball down the field when he doesn't have to. And he's trying to be the superhero. And guess what? The best quarterbacks in the NFL don't try to be superheroes. They're superheroes because they are excellent at giving what the defense gives them. No, they're excellent at taking what the defense gives them. Right? That's the right way to say that. Yeah. Right, so like Josh Allen, for instance. What makes Josh Allen so incredible? It's his ability to throw it down the field if you give him Gabe Davis on the edge, on the perimeter, and he's able to beat his defender, which does happen from time to time. But he's also really good at finding Isaiah McKenzie on the drag routes if Gabe Davis and Stephon Diggs are covered. And he's also really good at getting Stephon Diggs on RPOs and making excellent decisions there. But guess what? If they're going to just put seven corners out there on the field or seven players in the secondary, he's going to go and run it. And he can probably beat that linebacker that's QB spying him. But he very rarely forces the issue. And the only times that he's really forced the issue this year are the times when he's gotten intercepted. Like the last couple of games, he's thrown interceptions that he had not been throwing for the past couple of years. Why? Because he was forcing the issue. I don't know if part of it is that he's injured and he's not completely himself. He does have a UCL injury, which I don't know how in the world he's playing through that. God bless him. But the point is that those kinds of players, when they're on and they're at their best, they don't force the issue. They take what the defense gives them. Zach Wilson, I'm hoping looked at the film from week eight and week nine, looking at how Garrett Wilson was open on a curl route instead of trying to get, I don't know, Denzel Mims on a go route against the Patriots or trying to scramble and then throw it across his body to the other side of the field against the Patriots. I'm hoping he learned his lesson because he's thrown, let's see, he's thrown at the game logs now against the Patriots. He had that one four-in reception game against the Patriots last year, and he had three. Yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, we're looking at almost seven interceptions in three games for Zach Wilson against the Patriots. That is abysmal. So, and, and, and you know, honestly, when I'm looking at the film, it's not like he's in, he's inaccurate when he tries to force the ball. And it's mostly when he's out of the pocket. When he's in the pocket, he's actually quite accurate. And he's very good at making decisions. It's when he rolls out of the pocket, either mostly to the right that I've, that I've seen. 
where he gets himself into exploitable situations for the defense. He's not quite the Lamar Jackson or Jalen Hurts or Kyler Murray's. He is a tactical scrambler. He can scramble and he can get you 20, 25 yards because he ran a 78th percentile 40-yard dash. Right? He's an above-average athlete. He's not elite, but he can get there. As long as he's just taking what the defense gives him, the Jets are going to have a chance because the rest of this team is loaded. It's a similar situation to the Cleveland Browns, only that they've had better quarterback play than the Browns have had. And Zach Wilson gives off certain moxie vibes that some of the best quarterbacks in football have. And he has these plays, as I've alluded to, every week. He has these one or two plays that just make your jaw drop. But we've got to see that more consistently, and we've got to see it in a manner in which he's not forcing the ball in pockets that are going to get intercepted. Like, I think a lot of the mistakes that he makes are those that can be easily corrected. If he just goes into the film room, if he listens to the coaches and just throws the ball away, right? So I I think that's the key here, because if you look at that game against the Patriots, everyone was saying that the Jets should have won that game because they were dominant on the defensive side of the ball. The Patriots are a broken offense at this point. Mac Jones seems to have lost every ounce of confidence he had last year. And this team runs its offense through Ramondre Stevenson. Ramondre Stevenson is a really nice running back. He's a big guy who can catch the ball. Those are the kinds of running backs that I love. Big physical guys that can make tacklers miss and can catch the ball. He does that. So he's going to be a focal point of their offense alongside Jacoby Myers. But they're not the Derrick Henrys and DK Metcalfs or Devontae Adams of the world. These are guys you can beat, and they've already beat them. They just need to avoid the mistakes. If they avoid the mistakes, put it this way. If the Jets have one or less turnovers, so... No turnovers or one turnover. I think they're going to win this game. Because the Patriots really aren't that great. They've got a good enough defense. But they have played teams that have made some really foolish mistakes on the offensive side of the ball. I don't think they're as good as their numbers might indicate. Just looking at the film. But if the Jets turn the ball over more than two times or more, I hate to say it, but the Patriots are going to win this game because that's the formula for success. They don't have offensive firepower, so if you make them start in their own territory at the 25-yard line, they're going to have difficulty scoring. They're going to rely on a lot of field goals by Nick Folk. You don't want to give this team easy opportunities. You don't want to give them opportunities in your own half of the field. You don't want them starting your own territory. You got you to gotta make this offense beat you. And the only way you do that is by taking care of the football. So the X factor on this game, as cliche as it is, it is Zach Wilson. Securing the football, not fumbling, not making stupid decisions, right? When he's not trying to be the superhero, 
He's actually been quite good this year. And not a lot of people are willing to admit that. I'm willing to admit that Zach Wilson has been good when he's not trying to force the issue. But that's the issue. <laughs> he's trying to force the issue. So if, he, if he's not doing that, one or, one or no turnovers, looking at the Jets win. I really do believe that. I have to check the lines, but I believe Vegas has the Patriots winning this game. I have to check the spread. I, I would feel more comfortable taking the spread. But I, the money line, listen, if you want to get, if you want to go bold and go the money line on the Jets, I, I wouldn't hate it, but I, I definitely am willing to go the spread if the Patriots are the favorites. You know, at that point, I'm willing to do it because the Jets have proven that they can go into a team that has a loud stadium and win. They have absolutely shown a propensity to do that. So I'm all aboard the Jets in a potential upset win if they just do some of the small things right. Well, listen, we got 15 minutes left here on the show. We're going to talk a little bit of Knicks and Nets in the final segment. But if you've got a phone call, if you've got any questions for me on anything we've talked about or anything beyond that, please do so. 516-876-4964. Again, that's 516-876-4964. So we'll have one final segment. I encourage you to call in, and if not, we'll talk some Knicks and Nets. You've been listening to Sports Night with Smith here on OWWR Web Radio. Buzzed. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's starting with the woots. <laughs> and now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart. Heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. The Old Westbury men's basketball team is battling the Hofstra Pride on Thursday, December 22nd. The opening tip-off is at 11.30 a.m. in Hempstead. A team's success begins with the support of their fans, so mark your calendar and let's go take over Hofstra on Thursday, December 22nd, at 11.30 a.m. at Hofstra University in Hempstead. For more information, visit OldWestburyPanthers.com. That's OldWestburyPanthers.com. Broadcast worldwide on all of your devices. This is OWR Old Westbury Web. It is 8.47. We are in the final segment of Sports Night with Smith tonight, which is hard to believe. And it's funny. I, I first heard this song on a playlist on Spotify. And the first thing I'm thinking is like, man, I feel like I'm in Florida right now. Um, and I love Florida. So I like this song, evidently enough. I've been to Tampa. I've been to Fort Myers. I've been to Destin. And I got to be honest, I would live in each of those three areas. Destin is close. Des that Destin's on the fence because it is 
sort of in the middle of nowhere. It's on the panhandle. It's not as well known, obviously, as Fort Myers and Tampa. But, you know, Tampa is a beautiful city. A little bit hot, as is Fort Myers and all of Florida, really, during the summer. But, you know, honestly, I, I think I would take that payoff if it means that I get to really enjoy some nice weather throughout the winter. That's a big thing for me. So I am a self-proclaimed snowbird in the making, a very young one at that, and I'm completely okay with that. 848 here on the East Coast here on Long Island. So I, I said that we'd finish out with some Knicks and Nets talk, and I'm going to follow through on that one. But in essence, when we're talking about the Knicks and Nets, I welcome all of you with me to the land of mediocrity, where both the Knicks and Nets happen to find themselves right now. We are in the land of underperformance, disappointment, Drama that belongs in a reality show and not on a basketball court. And continually asking ourselves why we fall for this nonsense every year. Right? That sums it up pretty much. And that's a segment. That's a show. No, but all, all, all kidding aside, though. I said this last week, and I said it again with the Knicks. Jalen Brunson is a top 60 player in basketball. He's not top 20. Not even top 30. He's not even top 40. And guess what? He's not top 50 either. He's a top 60 player. And I understand that he's helped this team win some games. But you know what? Top 60 players can win your team some games once in a while. The issue with the Knicks is they've just got a collection of very nice players. And as we saw a couple of years ago in the playoffs against the Hawks, not going to cut it. You, you just cannot rely on one or two really good players to carry everything. You need a star player in this league. And it's so funny to me because I feel like the Knicks would benefit greatly from Kevin Durant. And it's never going to happen because I don't think the Nets would ever trade with the Knicks. It's kind of like the Mets trading with the Yankees. It's kind of voodoo. And it's discouraged for whatever reason. But listen, I mean, look, if I was the Nets and I was seriously considered, considering trading Kevin Durant, and I'm looking across the league at who's got the best packages for Kevin Durant. I mean, how can you not count the Knicks into that equation? They've got a collection of picks that I've talked about. They've got, I believe, 11 first-round picks in the next seven years. They've got a number of young players on their team that, I think could be expendable to them, but very valuable to other teams. Emmanuel quickly will be topping, right? They've got a number of players that you could move in a deal for Kevin Durant. So listen, I'm not sitting here and saying that the Knicks and Nets are going to work out this behemoth of a trade. I don't think that's going to happen for the reasons I brought up. But on paper, if you're just removing the team names and you just put these rosters in front of me and the situations they find themselves in, on paper, it makes a lot of sense for the Knicks and Nets to make a trade. So, I think the Knicks need a star-level player, and I think the Nets, you know, I, I honest to God don't know what to do with the Nets. I mean, they just lost by 32 to uh, the, oh, I don't know, Sacramento Kings? Which is like... 
the Sacramento Kings are are just one of the most forgettable, uninteresting franchises in North American sports. And they cleaned house against a team that has Kevin Durant on it. Like, that's just inconceivable. And it's not like the Kings have been this powerhouse of a team this year. They have been about as mediocre as the Nets have been. And they just clean them out dry. That's where we are with the Brooklyn Nets. Ben Simmons is a complete zero at this point, which is just, it's simply one of the biggest falls from grace I have ever seen in basketball. Like, he's starting to get close to Cody Bellinger in baseball, right? Cody Bellinger was the darling of young players in Major League Baseball for a three- to four-year stretch there. And 2021 comes around, and he's hitting 190 over his last two seasons. Like, that's just that's the kind of path that Ben Simmons is on. And shame on me for thinking that Ben Simmons would be able to come in and, and not really skip a beat. Because shooting was never really a part of his game. And when you're out of the game for as long as he was, that's typically the last thing that comes into form. You're usually very rusty with your shot, but you can usually contribute in other ways. And guess what? That's Ben Simmons used to do everything at an elite clip for a point forward except shooting. So that was never really the concern. So I figured that he'd be able to step right in, help facilitate the ball to Kyrie and KD, and shame on me for thinking so. So this brings up the question for the Nets, which feeds into another question. Are the Nets ever going to be competitive again with KD on the roster? Will KD be on the next competitive roster? I, I mean, at this point, I don't think you can say the answer is yes. KD is getting up there in age. I mean, we're talking about a guy that's 34 years old now. He's not a young player at this point. And I, I understand that players are playing well into their 30s at this point and sometimes even to their 40s. But you are running out of time with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, I... I've said this, he's a top 10 player in the league, but I don't think that's ever top 10 talent in the league, more specifically. I just don't know if this iteration of the team is ever going to come close to what they did two years ago when they almost knocked out the Bucs. Right? They, they needed one more win. They were up 3-2 against the Bucs in that conference semifinals matchup against the Bucs, and they just could not seal the deal. Right, they lost that game seven in overtime to Giannis and the Bucks, and they have never been the same. James Harden wanted out. Kyrie's been Kyrie, and KD is basically the only form of consistency on that team. So, I mean, I said a couple weeks ago that you had to see how this team played with more time between KD, Kyrie, and Ben on the court. I'm just getting to the point, though, where I don't think that's going to happen. And if that's not going to happen, I think you have to entertain the idea of trading Kevin Durant. Now, is it at the deadline? 
Probably not. It's very difficult to make a significant deal during the season for a player like that. I don't really know why it is. I, I feel like whatever you got to do to get Kevin Durant on your team, you got to make it happen. But it just seems like this is the kind of player that would get traded in the offseason. And we've heard rumblings about the Lakers flipping Anthony Davis and using most of those assets and then some to get KD. I mean, if, if, if you're the Lakers and you can do that, you 1 million percent should do that. And you should try to do that not during the season or not during the offseason rather, but during the season. But, you know, Kevin Durant's going to require a lot in trade and rightfully so. The issue with the Nets is they're a very top-heavy team. And if you can get a collection of high-end assets and picks, young players, similar to what the Knicks can give you, I think they're at that point where they have to entertain the offer. And I don't know if it's going to require a new GM to come in and to come in with a fresh set of eyes and to realize that this team is not close. But listen, if you can trade away Kevin Durant and Seth Curry, Kyrie, I think you do it. And I don't think you trade Ben Simmons. I think you just kind of hope that maybe with less pressure in Brooklyn by trading away KD and Kyrie, that maybe he finds some form. Maybe you flip him at that point. Maybe you keep him around. I don't know. But this current iteration of the Nets is not going to get it done. It's just not. And it's sad because this is a conversation of what could have been for the Brooklyn Nets. It truly is sad that we're having this conversation. It's truly sad that we've wasted years of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And it's just depressing to know that we went from an organization that was on the upswing in 2019, had all these young players and all these picks, only for them to royally screw it up. And in only a way that the Brooklyn and New Jersey Nets of old could. The Nets have always had promising situations. If you remember back in 2010, they had a bunch of young players. Derek Favors was just drafted. They had a bunch of first-round picks after that. They had cap space. They were moving to Brooklyn. And they really put a very old and so-so team up on that court. Devin Williams, Joe Johnson, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, all towards, and Jason Terry, all towards the end of their respective careers. And it just kind of feels like they're in that same mold again this time, just 2.0. So it's really sad what's transpired in Brooklyn, and I hope they can turn it around here. But listen, everyone, that's going to do it for this episode of Sports Night with Smith. It's been a pleasure talking to all of you. Uh, we'll do it again. Probably not next week because that's going to be Thanksgiving coming up, but I would imagine maybe the week after that we'll be back on, on live. I will confirm that on my Facebook and Twitter. But listen, if I don't hear from you guys in a couple of weeks, we'll talk soon. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Be with your friends and family. Have a Friendsgiving if you're not with family, but take this time to just be grateful for what we do have because believe me, it's a lot. Thank you, everyone. You're listening to Sports Night with Smith on OWWR Web Radio. Have a good night, everyone. Again, for the hundredth time today.
here's that song again. It's gonna be stuck in your head all day. Yay! Here's that song again. It will make you cray cray. You love your kids enough to watch that TV show a bajillion times. Yay! Love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Tui Gable Talk Sports is back live every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. here at Tui and the Texan break down all the hottest sports news. The NFL postseason race is on, the NHL season is heating up, and the NBA season is one of the wildest in recent memory, as well as off-season MLB moves. There's a lot to talk about in the world of sports, and who better to listen to than two award-winning college radio show hosts. And hey, if you don't agree with us, feel free to call in anytime and we'll put you on. Once again, that's Tui and Gable Talk Sports every Monday live from 8 to 10 p.m. only on OWR on the Westbury Web Radio.